Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Marvell Adams, Chief Operating Officer of the Kendall Corporation. The Kennett Square, Pennsylvania-based organization's portfolio includes 13 communities spread across several states. Kendall has seen its fair share of challenges since the pandemic began, but that hasn't slowed down many of the organization's efforts, including its quest to recruit and retain workers. In sourcing new talent, a role that Adams had previously handled at Kendall, the organization focuses on meeting prospective workers where they are. And Kendall is also focused on making its workforce more diverse, even as the pandemic necessitates some more creative thinking in hiring. Before we get to that interview, a word from our sponsor, Investors Bank. Where can senior living facilities turn for capital in these challenging times? Investors Bank has the expertise and options you look for, like variable rate commercial lines of credit and term loans with flexible terms and competitive interest rates. Visit investorsbank.com backslash SLL. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Now, here's my interview with Marvell Adams, COO at the Kendall Corporation. Marvell Adams, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. You know, it's been about eight months since the COVID-19 pandemic has begun. So I wanted to check in. How have the last eight or so months gone at Kendall? Thanks so much for having me on, Tim. I have to say, it it certainly has not been easy, as I think everyone would say. For us, we found that some of the reports that people are seeing about nursing homes and, and other aspects of how COVID has really ravaged our industry I can't say we're experiencing at that level, meaning that most of our communities are currently COVID-free and and many of them have been COVID-free this entire time. We have had some uh, communities that have had a handful of cases, but the I think the main thing we've taken some reassurance in is that in the cases where we've had a community maybe have one or two COVID cases, we've, they've been able to really contain it. And, and prevent the spread from happening. So that's been very helpful. But all of the other aspects of, of the pandemic, we certainly experienced just as much as everyone else, you know, between the, the stress of our staff, uh, the difficulty of, of trying to combat isolation amongst residents, being able to, frankly, make sure that uh, we have the, the revenue, the funds we need to be able to purchase PPE, to potentially pay hero pay. So there's, there's, there's a lot that's going on, but certainly we uh, are glad that we're able to continue to persevere as we have. I think you mentioned a couple of them just a moment ago, but where have some of the biggest operational challenges or pressures been? And then I want to also turn that question around and ask, what are you most proud of in the past eight months? So I guess we'll start with the challenges and then you can talk about maybe some of the bright spots. You know, the the biggest challenges have been because we're a multi-state, multi-site organization. And so we're across uh, several states with uh, with 13 communities, one of those being an at-home program. And so for us operationally, some of the difficulty has been around, okay, a state-specific plan does not work for our entire system. So what Maryland may be doing 
uh, you know, obviously may be very different than what Ohio's doing, maybe very different than what New York's doing. And so for the Kimball Corporation, being able to support the affiliates, but also having an awareness of their state regulations and what's being allowed and what's being done is a big, big part of the challenge because we could have some states that have done very well of supporting senior living providers and Kimball Corporation has not had to do very much support at all. Uh, we've had other organizations where testing became mandated a little bit later uh, than others. And so uh, trying to find testing providers uh, and partners has been part of our role as well. So it's uh, operationally, it's been difficult because we don't have a national strategy, you know, and I think many people have experienced the difficulties with that. And so in absence of that national strategy, we've really had to customize and look at how can we support each affiliate based upon what their state is doing. Uh, or not doing. Beyond that, we've had very good success in obtaining PPE. So when the pandemic started, uh, we had just started to move towards a different strategy around procurement and ensuring that we could really bring together all the volume buying power that we had across the system and kind of drive prices down. But also we found that we really had to go it alone in the sense of trying to source uh, PPE, and we had a we have a um, specific member of our team, Ben Butler, our director of culinary and procurement, that essentially every day <laughs> uh, during the first part of the pandemic and still now, sourcing PPE, uh, procuring it, getting it shipped in, and then sending it out to the affiliates as they may need it. And so that has been a great success for us because we not once did we have a community be short of PPE. Not a single time did someone go to reach for a gown, a glove, a mask, and not be able to have one. In the very beginning, certainly people didn't really know what the protocols were. And so should we use N95? Should you use surgical masks? Should we use shields? But we've really had a great deal of success and have been working to find ways to help. You know, are there ways we could help other providers in sourcing PPE, uh, just given the success we've had within Kendall. Uh, in one instance, we actually were able to help a local hospital that was adjacent to one of our Kendalls gather some, uh, get some PPE because they had some difficulty uh, sourcing it. So that's been good for us. It's not great that we had to <laughs> really batten down the hatches and get it ourselves, but it really has been successful for us. I have, I've, I've spoken with Ben a couple times since the pandemic has started, and I have no doubt that he's worked very hard to procure those supplies. Yes. I want to talk about testing. I think that's kind of part of this whole picture in terms of obtaining supplies and things like that. I've, I've heard over the past eight months, you know, Testing has, has, for some providers, been a continual challenge. So how has Kendall handled testing in its communities? And do you have any best practices, you know, eight months into this that you could share with us? So we have been handling testing still a little bit on the way that we've talked about the state-specific approaches. So for those states, you know, Maryland was one of them where we have uh, one community where the state itself was administering the test. So we didn't need to provide that much support, but we did take an approach of, okay, we want to make sure that no matter what, everyone has some sort of option for a partner to do testing with, whether they're going to be doing testing with the state or not. And so we did identify a handful of partners that all of our affiliates could reach out to, be assured that they could get testing materials sent to them in order to uh, do swabs and send them back and get a, a pretty decent turnaround time. But for us, you know, we saw early on the difficulties that were going to be coming with that. One was going to be, okay, you identify a provider, 
and the turnaround time is quick. We'll get it back to you in 24, 48 hours. But many times that's because they have not maxed out their capacity. And so that may be the case, you know, at one point in time, but three months later, that provider may say, actually, we can't get it to you in a week for a week now. And so what we've been doing is trying to stay ahead of the curve. And as we see perhaps a potential partner maxing out, we've gone and just found another partner. doesn't mean we jettison that one, but the turnaround time, as everyone knows, is just so critical. And so we've just tried to work on ratcheting that down more and more. Uh, and so as we're trying to find providers that can do that and supply those to the affiliates, some have already made partnerships that are giving them that assurance and others needed uh, help in finding up some primary or secondary plans to to meet those needs. But also it's just around how do you then meet the obligations that may be there from a state perspective? The surveillance testing. So that is, it could fill a whole spreadsheet if we just looked at the Kindle affiliates and the different ways in which the different states want them to do surveillance testing. You know, but for us, that surveillance testing has been helpful to be able to find, obviously, asymptomatic uh, individuals that may be out there. And we had a lull for a bit where, you know, the testing was just surveillance testing, but we weren't having any positives pop up. But we've seen a little bit of a spike in the sense of um, when colleges and universities opening back up, you know, Kendall being a system of university uh, connected or university based retirement communities. That meant that most of our communities were in a footprint that would be influenced or affected by if there were any spikes in COVID at the universities and colleges surrounding them. Uh, but even in those cases, we found that uh, the surveillance testing we did would allow us to catch the first part of maybe a, a slight spike and then be able to mitigate it so that we could then you know, not have it uh, get to a significant community spread. So. It continues to be certainly a challenge. And, and as I said, with the PPE, you know, a national strategy is one that would be greatly appreciated and helped at this point because, you know, right now we have states like you've got Maryland, you've got Delaware, you've got Virginia. You know, those, those states are kind of considered like one big state in this part of the country and people cross state lines. But if Maryland's doing something different than DC's doing, then, then Virginia's doing, then Delaware's doing, and then you get into New Jersey and Connecticut, that's where it gets a little bit dicey because you want to be able to have a consistency in uh, not only the testing, but also being able to tr- contact trace. I'm curious, have have those antigen tests come in handy, the rapid tests? I know that system providers were slated to get some of those from HHS. So have have those been have those come in handy in your strategy or or you know, tell me more about that? You know, I would say a tiny bit. <laughs> you know, because uh, the issue with those the, those were sent out, the antigen tests were sent. You know, that was a great, you know, step forward in the sense of a a national response and support to senior living providers. But there uh, immediately, once those were received, uh, there was not enough of a supply of the actual testing supplies to keep, you know, uh, an antigen test-based program going. And so most, actually all of our communities held on to those, did not use, utilize them. But we did have one community that, uh, that had some positive tests as kids were coming back to school. And so they, they did rely upon those rapid tests really just to be able to get a quick turnaround and get a sense of, okay, do we have some asymptomatic persons that are working here or living here? And in that one instance, we were able to very quickly mitigate uh, a couple positive COVID cases that came up 
but did not spread throughout the community, did not spread out through the employees because we were able to identify it quickly. It's not a long-term strategy because, again, the, the issue of getting the proper supplies for those testing, uh, antigen testing, continues to be an issue. But in cases where we really need to get a result, even though the accuracy is not as good as we'd like it to be, it has been helpful in those very specific cases. Earlier, you mentioned some partnerships that have come in handy. More generally, what, what clinical programs are helping Kendall right now? And I say this knowing in my head that you, I think you have a community in New York that collaborates with a hospital affiliated with the Mayo Clinic. So I'm curious if any of these similar kinds of partnerships and collaborations have come in handy. It has. You know, so we have partnerships with uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock up in Hanover, New Hampshire. We have uh, a partnership with MedStar, uh, which is a pretty significant not-for-profit hospital system and provider in the Mid-Atlantic. Partnerships, as you've mentioned before, about uh, in New York with uh, providers there having partnerships with the Mayo Clinic, and also even in other areas where there is a close relationship with a, a hospital, an acute care provider, in those instances where we can rely upon them for support for their uh, infrastructure for testing, we've done that. You know, that, that certainly has been helpful, particularly as we've tried to continue to help with uh, residents that live on our campus that may go to the hospital for one reason or the other, being able to come back to our campus safely and as quickly as possible by having that partnership with the, the hospital or to prevent a resident from going out to the hospital by getting some help from that hospital for, for testing if need be. But in general, we've been able to have access to the, the types of uh, protocols and tests that would be necessary. But in those instances, it certainly has been a great enhancement to have a strong acute care partner where we can. I also am curious just about execution. We've talked a little bit today about, you know, how there are a lot of moving parts at Kendall. I think this is true for, you know, any similar sized senior living provider. So you are COO. How are you keeping things moving forward day to day, given all of these pressures and just given all of the different considerations you have to make during all of this? Well, you know, I would say that uh, our role, my specific role, as well as Sean and and other members of our team, is really uh, to to be a part of that support system for for each of the communities. Because of uh, the way our system is set up, that we call a federal model, each community has uh, its own executive director that reports to its local board of directors, and that's the case across all 13 affiliates. And so for us, we want to be able to customize our approach that we can support people and meet them where they are. So for my day-to-day, that could be anything from our team working to find an additional provider for testing. That could be anything from we get a call saying that they need some PPE, you know, as quickly as possible because maybe there was an uptick in the utilization or a miscount. Uh, and so getting those shipped out uh, to them as quickly as possible, either from the Kendall Corporation or directly from a supplier who we've made partnerships with. And that could be even that or just to, quite frankly, recognize when having uh, conversations with the CEOs of our communities and others of the stress that everyone is under, you know, giving folks the space to be able to share, to be able to acknowledge that, hey, this is not easy and is not going to let up anytime soon, as well as providing our system the opportunity to understand that our support of one another is really going to be critical as we continue to move forward 
because from our perspective, it's not just about residents. It's not just about staff. Uh, it's about resident staff, board members, families, you know, keeping visitors safe. You know, that, that community doesn't just end uh, for those residents that, that have a monthly service fee, you know, living in a community or those residents that are part of a Kindle at Home program. Instead, it means how can we expand our support system so that staff members know it is extremely important for us that you and your family are safe, not just because we need your support and help with our community, but because you yourself are an important part of this family and this community, and we want your extended family to be safe as well. So it really can run the gamut. Uh, like most communities, when we first started, we were talking every morning, every day across the system, seven days a week. Uh, and now we touch base every week, every other week, depending on what's necessary. But for us, we try to put ourselves in a position, at least at Kindle Corporation, that slightly ahead of the curve so that we can maybe see something coming that when you're in the day-to-day and the affiliate, you may not, as well as learning of best practices or model practices at other affiliates and making sure they're disseminated and shared across the system. And many times we do that through our um, intranet or Kindle net that we utilize where we've loaded up model practices, we've protocols, policies, you know, you name it, so that folks can pull those up and, and customize them as they need to. You'd mentioned safety a moment ago. I think this is a good safe, uh, uh, segue into talking about marketing. So generally, I mean, this, this pandemic has really, I think, shifted the way the industry is marketing senior living to prospective residents. But I'm curious, how has the pandemic changed how Kendall is marketing its communities to prospects? And just generally, what has the pandemic done to Kendall's normal sales process? I'm assuming it's, it's radically changed it. Uh, yes, to a certain extent. I mean, so for instance, we, we, you know, the idea of a, a lunch and learn with a hundred prospective residents, uh, is, is no longer there. But that doesn't mean we aren't having events. We are continuing to have, uh, pretty significant and actually virtual events that I suspect we may want to keep going even after the pandemic starts to subside. So, for instance, there's an individual, a great friend and, and colleague of ours, uh, G. Soren Brown, uh, who heads up the Leading Age Academy, uh, Fellowship Academy, and uh, she did a spectacular virtual uh, prospect event for the entire Kindle system where she did a talk about resiliency, you know, because that is really kind of the core piece of what uh, all of us are having to face and really uh, have that sense of resiliency uh, at our core. So that was a great event. We normally could not have done that for, you know, more than maybe 100 or so people on site in an auditorium or, uh, you know, at an offsite location. But in this instance, we were able to reach, you know, hundreds of prospective residents in their homes and really provide them with information that was pertinent to them here and now. But what that also has allowed us to do is to, for lack of a better word, Tim, showcase the types of protocols and and precautions that each of our communities take. And in some instances, that has actually resulted in uh, prospective residents, one, either not changing their plan to move in, so moving on the exact moving in on the exact same timeline they planned previously, but of course once arriving quarantining uh, for a couple of weeks before being more into the community. And, and a couple of we've had actual prospective residents move in, asked to move in sooner and move in sooner because they felt, okay, I'm in my neighborhood, 
uh, here, but I'm looking at Kendall at Oberlin and, you know, they, they don't have any COVID cases. So maybe I'm safer if I'm there, you know, someone's going to deliver my food to me. So there's, there's this aspect of community that, that has given some prospects the thought process of, you know, maybe it, it's safer if I'm at a Kendall community. We've had some instances of folks do uh, delays in moving in for a, a whole host of reasons that, you know, you would expect any time, even without a pandemic. But for us, we have not seen a need to completely stop admissions. Uh, in fact, we haven't, but we have had to change protocols so that we can assure that when someone moves into our campus, they can rest assured that their best interests are going to be met and that their, their, their new neighbors, their safety is paramount as well in ensuring uh, that they quarantine for an appropriate period of time. You mentioned doing some events uh, a, a moment ago, and you talked about how maybe keeping some of those virtual events, even in the post-pandemic world, I thought that was very interesting. Do you have a sense of what prospective residents or their families might want in a post-pandemic world? I mean, who knows when, when all of this will end? Yeah. So say what you will about the CMS star rating system. For good or bad, it became the this, you know, the single source of information uh, or primary source of information for consumers looking for nursing homes and looking for nursing homes that have a high quality of care, good staffing, you know, uh, survey results, things like that. And so people, that's really a, a well-known go-to to just do a first kind of look of what type of care and what type of nursing home you're dealing with. So you expand that to senior living and I think prospective residents and their families are going to want to understand what are your infection rates? What are your, your sanitation and cleaning protocols? You know, how do you keep residents safe there? What, what, what is your percentage of individuals that have been vaccinated against the normal influenza? And then once a vaccine comes online for uh, the coronavirus, what percentage of your, your, your staff and residents have been vaccinated? I think that type of information is going to be so critical as people make their decisions. Because there is, you know, understandably some fear that is there because, you know, it's not so easy, I think, to, to put out there as a news story, you know, a half dozen spectacular instances of how things have gone so well at a senior living provider. Usually you're hearing about when things have not gone so well. And so right. with that in mind, I think consumers are really going to need to be reassured because from the get-go, uh, and you've, I'm sure you've heard this yourself, Tim, the protocols that we have in place for COVID-19 are protocols that we have had, trained on, no in and out, because this is what we do. So in order to keep the flu influenza out of our community, that is not too far of a stretch to get to keeping the coronavirus at bay. Uh, if you're talking about a stomach bug, you know, that, that the neurovirus, that can be pretty uh, troublesome and inconvenient for our community, Protocols around hand washing and wiping down surfaces and understanding how long that product needs to sit on that surface in order to kill the virus versus just spraying and wiping it down quickly. All that type of training was already there. And so for communities like Kendall and others, there was not this huge learning curve of, okay, we got to figure out right now, how do we do infection control? Well, no, we know how to do infection control. And it's been usually something behind the scenes for consumers. I think this becomes post-COVID a very standardized way of consumers judging and seeing for themselves, okay, what type of community am I considering? And are they taking infection control as seriously as I want them to? And are they successful uh, as one might uh, hope? 
and keeping resident staff and others safe. I know you were personally focused on sourcing emerging talent before took the COO role. What has hiring been like during COVID-19? You know, what are some of the biggest challenges and have you found any creative solutions for keeping people coming in through the door or on the job during, you know, a stressful and, you know, honestly scary time for them? Yeah. Yeah. It is very difficult because particularly when the protocols, you know, first started around how do we mitigate the risk as much as we possibly can while still having a staff member base that that can really be sustainable. So part of that has been around, how do I put it? So how do we ensure that staff know we see the challenges that they have and that all of us are experiencing? So the first iteration that was hero pay. So when uh, there were COVID cases that that, uh, may have uh, popped up in, in in a community, recognizing that the staff that are doing the work in order to one, care for those residents that may uh, have COVID or may have had an exposure, that there's a risk associated with that. Uh, It's not a risk that can't be controlled and mitigated, but you're asking something of them that perhaps is a little bit of a higher mark than than previously. So that hero pay, so having an additional dollar amount for their hourly wage or some type of uh, remuneration that may be based on a month or a quarter or, you know, a certain milestone. So that has been helpful. But, you know, also part of it has been, as I said, our approach uh, within our communities, particularly because of our Quaker roots, meeting people where they are and understanding, okay, what are your challenges? Because someone that is a single parent uh, with, with two kids that are in elementary school during this pandemic has a hugely different challenge than someone that may be uh, nearing retirement and lives alone. You know, it doesn't mean that the risk that they're exposed to is less, but the challenges of of them just getting to work on a daily basis are very different. Uh, And so how do we recognize that we don't want to, you know, preferential treatment by no sense of the uh, stretch of imagination, but we do want to understand what someone's challenges are because they can be unique and how do we help them surmount those. Some in, in some ways that, that's been an infrastructure that already existed. So for instance, we have Kendall communities that have daycare on site. In most instances, those daycares uh, shut down temporarily, but have come back online uh, to provide that type of support needed for families or staff members and their families or community individuals. And so being able to understand what someone's challenges are, and even if it means that they are dealing with financial challenges because a loved one or a spouse or a partner have, has lost their job, referring them to an employee assistance program. I mean, the, being able to recognize you have resources, talking to them about their insurance benefits so they understand, you know, should they have a health event, uh, the types of things that will be covered. And also giving the reassurance that, you know, we're here, <laughs> you know, and we're going to be here. And, and each day that you come back, you know, we're going to keep showing up as, uh, as well. Over the summer, Kendall president and CEO Sean Kelly wrote, I think, a great short essay, uh, some words affirming social justice. This was during the protests over the deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, and George Floyd. Um, I personally admired his words. I thought they were all very well said. Would you like to see more senior loving providers speak out about social justice like, like your CEO and President Sean Kelly did? Absolutely. I think that there is a great deal of work for for all of us to do in order to 
one, recognize the injustices and the inequality that has been visited upon Black Americans for centuries. I think Sean speaking out, certainly speaking uh, with the voice of the entire Kendall system, was a great example of showing staff, residents, and board members that we understand. And not only we understand, but we recognize we have a lot still to learn. Uh, and so with that aspect of it, you know, I, I think it would be spectacular for, for other communities, uh, CEOs, leadership board chairs to put out, you know, public statements that say, we understand the challenges that exist for people of color, and we understand that our communities thrive on diversity. Our communities do better when people of color are a part of our resident uh, communities, our staff communities, our board communities, so that we can have a shared understanding of each other's unique talents we bring to the table, but also the difficulties that may exist historically for one a particular group. So, yes, I would love to see uh, more of that. And certainly as we head into the Leading Age virtual annual meeting in a couple of weeks, you know, there'll be more and more opportunity for engagement around this and for potentially CEOs and other key stakeholders at communities to, to speak out with a strong voice and recognize that Black, Indigenous, and people of color uh, play such a huge role in the work we do every day. And as such, we should do all we can to play a significant role in ensuring that their lives are respected, that their lives are seen as important, and that their lives matter. I want to kind of combine two topics that we've talked about, staffing, and now uh, you mentioned diversity. So I'm curious, so so we, we talked about hiring a moment ago. As Kendall works to hire new workers, how, what ways is the organization working to improve diversity in its workforce? So there's there's a couple things going on when you talk about diversity in the workforce. Many communities, Kendall communities and, and, and outside of Kendall, you have a significant uh, number of, of people of color that are working as CNAs, as nurses, as housekeepers, as, as dietary aides, cooks, you name it. Where the, you know, the significant gap is, is when you talk about uh, senior leadership. And that Across our industry, uh, it is very rare, you know, and, and you can't see this, that your, your listeners can't see this, but I'm pointing at myself. It's very rare for someone like myself being uh, black, a male, and being uh, the chief operating officer of, uh, of a top senior living provider. So when you look at uh, that type of landscape, there really are a couple different approaches that, that we are taking and, and see that others uh, could potentially take as well is one, uh, recognizing that there's no, there's no switch to flip that could make a community's senior leadership or any other parts of it, its board, diverse overnight. It's just not going to happen that way. So one, when you're talking about where there is a need for increased and improved diversity and cultural competency, that that needs to start way sooner than you know, when, when someone's 10, 15 years into their uh, career. You really have to start back uh, when they're students. And so how do we get more students uh, of color into this industry? How do we support them? How do we recognize that someone um, that is uh, black, indigenous, or a person of color may have a different experience and may have a different uh, path to senior leadership than someone that is white? 
So for us, that means investing in Leading Ages Summer Enrichment Program, which will be launching uh, next summer to be able to focus on bringing Black, Indigenous, and people of color into internships with senior living providers with a very uh, high focus on those individuals, one, having regular access and engagement with the senior leaders of the organization, not just you know, the, the directors uh, and VPs, but the COOs and CEOs and CFOs of the organizations that so we have that exposure. Two, being able, one of the more unique parts of the program is anyone that participates and has an intern come through the Summer Enrichment Program of Leading Eight, that organization makes a commitment to go through some type of racial sensitivity or, or training so that they have a baseline, at least, that we can be assured that that they, they can do all they can to have an inclusive environment when that intern shows up. Because for many of our communities within leading age, it very well could be that a person of color as an intern could be the only person of color within the administration of that place or the upper leadership of it. And so how do you support that individual? And another way we're doing that is ensuring that that person has a mentor uh, that is a person of color outside of the organization that they're, that they're interning with. So that, that's kind of one piece of it. But I, I think that the challenge for us is if we're talking about diversity and improving diversity across our system, we really have to consider how do we do that in a way that is authentic, you know? So, so uh, just being able to say, okay, yeah, we just did this training and so we're good, or we sent out a letter, we're great. I don't think that's what we're talking about. I think we really are talking about recognizing what the challenges are, for people of color to be a part of our organizations as resident staff or board members or others? And then how do we remove those barriers? Because at the end of the day, if an individual looks to engage with the Kindle community and they're a person of color, if they do not feel that the organization is inclusive, the diversity piece will never get there. You know, so if I'm not feeling that I'm, uh, that, that a community is inclusive, then, you know, Will I work there? Will I stay there? Maybe not. And then tangentially, how do we figure out successfully that an individual wanting to engage with Kindle and be a stakeholder, how do they then have the the license to be able to to speak up and say, you know, if if something is uncomfortable, if something is is not inviting for them. Uh, and many times that comes down to trying to have the organization become culturally competent. Because if you are in certain parts of the country, it may be very difficult to have someone join your organization at any level that improves the diversity of the organization. But that doesn't mean that the community cannot improve its cultural competency so that they have a better understanding of different cultures, that they have an ability to be more inclusive, and that they are welcoming so that as diversity increases and improves across different geographies, that that community will be ready to invite and welcome in uh, that type of diversity. The last thing I'll mention to you is, at least on this topic, is one of the things that COVID has provided us, though, is you've got boards of Kindle communities and all leading age and other not-for-profits that are most likely meeting virtually. So, you know, for someone that is senior living provider in Montana, uh, nothing is Montana, <laughs> uh, but if there is, if that board says, you know, we really we, we can't find individuals willing to join our board 
that uh, are black, indigenous, or people of color. So what does that mean? Well, they're not in this area. They can't come to the board meetings. Okay. Well, for the last nine months, most organizations have not had board members be in the same room. They've been on Zoom. They've been on Skype. They've been on WebEx. And so to me, that means any organization right now has shuttered away the, the reason, the excuse, the barrier to diversifying their board. Because, you know, if I'm right now in Baltimore, Maryland, and, and serving a community here, there's no reason that I could not recruit a board member that is from Los Angeles, that is from Seattle, that is from Houston, Texas, that is from New York City, that's from Miami, Florida. And recognize that if we continue to look at this as a as an opportunity in the sense of the way we're doing business during the pandemic, that diversity can really be a great outcome, increased diversity, a great outcome of, of some of the, the more creative ways we've had to meet our, our obligations. Marvell, I, I want to get your take on the future. So this is maybe a two-part question. So mm-hmm. the first part of this is, I mean, right now we are seeing, I think, we, we are seeing very, very high levels of new infections of COVID-19. Uh, couple that with, we have, you know, what has historically been some of the worst months for the seasonal flu coming up. So looking over the next, you know, six months or so, I guess, first off, what are you preparing for in terms of, of challenges ahead? And then secondly, you know, operationally, uh, what will you be focused on in the next six months and beyond? Two-part question, two-part answer. So first part is, yes, absolutely every single one of our communities is preparing as we uh, normally would for the traditional flu season with uh, staff members uh, getting flu shots, residents being offered flu shots, things along those lines, and continuing to use protocols that for some reason, if there's an allergy to that flu shot, then they, you know, before the pandemic, our staff members needed to wear a mask during flu season if they did not get the flu shot uh, as a means to mitigate the risk of, of exposure. So when we're talking about a flu season plus the coronavirus going into it, you know, that, that means to us that our protocols we've had during the pandemic need to stay strong and consistent, that our protocols around the, the um, traditional flu season need to come online and, and be uh, hypervigilant about making sure that the access we have to vaccines for the traditional flu are disseminated and, and, and we have good coverage for that for our staff. So that turns us to, frankly, with the spikes we're seeing now and, and, and unfortunately the uh, higher levels of infection rates than we saw previously during the first part of the pandemic, is looking back to some of the practices we had when we knew a lot less about COVID, learning from those experiences and preparing accordingly. So for instance, uh, PPE, making sure right now that, that we are in a position to say as we're going, as we're entered November, that, that we will be in a good position to, to have an ample supply and a sufficient supply of PPE through the winter. So we've gotten ourselves to a point of beginning that process and really feeling assured about that. But then also, I think we have to look at what does it mean to continue with the protocols we have, but finding ways to break down barriers to eliminating isolation amongst residents, finding ways to continue to be supportive of staff in keeping their stress levels uh, managed and reducing wherever we can. And then, frankly, just continuing to keep ourselves in a position to be nimble, as well as finding ways 
to continue to to move forward and not trying to get back to what we had, but frankly, get to a position of being better than we were before, that we can really feel assured that if there's another pandemic, if there's another novel virus that may come along, that that we don't see the level of disruption that we've seen in 2020, but instead we're able to use this model practice and keep at bay perhaps a future pandemic that may come. So, you know, this, as everyone said, this is a new way of living. This is a new way of doing business for all of us. And, you know, I say shame on us if we don't learn the lessons that we've seen put before us in the last few months and ensure that we have the best outcomes for uh, our resident staff and board members and others going into 2021. Marvell, thank you so much for talking with me this morning. It has been great. I feel like we all learned a lot. So I am just so appreciative that you came on Transform. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. Take care. That does it for this episode of Transform. We would again like to thank our sponsor, Investors Bank. Where can senior living facilities turn for capital in these challenging times? Investors Bank has the expertise and options you look for, like variable rate commercial lines of credit and term loans with flexible terms and competitive interest rates. Visit investorsbank.com backslash SLL. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.